Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. It is 11 minutes after 10 p.m. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for the honor and the privilege of your company. So three Defense Force trainees were assaulted uh, by VIP Protection Unit members, which are employees of SAPS. And they have opened a case of assault against these members. And this assault was uh, recorded on telephone, went viral. And these are members uh, responsible for protecting uh, Deputy President Paul Mashatile. So it's a clear case of police brutality. But what are the prospects of success? What are the qualifiers? What are the intricacies of litigating against the state when it comes to police brutality? And how common an occurrence is police brutality in South Africa? I remember during lockdown, oh my goodness, was it horrible. The police and the military included went around literally assaulting people in their homes. You would recall the one gentleman that was killed in his home at the, harm, at the, uh, at the hands of the armed forces, right? It, it clearly is a part of South African uh, policing culture. But is anything being done about it? I don't know. Professor Peter Jordi of the University of the Witwatersrand Law Clinic is with us. Prof, good evening. Welcome to Night Talk. Prof Jordi? Good evening. Oh, Hello. There, there we go. Now we can hear you. Hi. Good evening. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Loud and clear. I can hear you loud and clear. And I hope you can hear me well as well. How, it, it, perhaps maybe scale for us. The Hi. There we go. We can hear you, Prof. We can hear you. Are you able to hear me? Yeah. Oh, your line just went a little bit uh, static there. Do you want to try that again? Yes, I can hear you. It's a little bit broken, but... Um... Hopefully it's going to get better. Oh, it's definitely not getting better. Let's see if we can get you onto a different line. That uh, is certainly not stable. I'm hoping the reception will be better here. Okay, I can hear you. That's that's We can work with that. We can work with that. Um, let's start with this. How common yeah. an occurrence is pr- police brutality in South Africa? How undisciplined, generally speaking, are our police? How often do you see these sorts of cases? <laughs> If you, if you look at a court role, in other words, a list of cases being tried in a civil court in pretty much all of the magistrates' courts that we deal with in Gauteng and also in the High Court, you'll see that there are numerous cases virtually every day against the Minister of Police. So there are many, many cases. Look, most of them will probably be cases for wrongful arrest and detention. But some of those, quite a few, will involve assault allegations. And And some of them are serious. We do have an ombud to that effect, the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, IPED. It's supposed to protect the public from police brutality or at least be an institution that facilitates recourse for victims of police brutality. How effective has IPED been in in, in being a platform and a forum uh, to assist the public to access recourse? I don't work closely with IPED, Um, but I do have occasional contact with them. And in my experience, in respect of serious allegations, they generally take them, uh, deal with them appropriately, investigate them, um, draw up something akin to a police docket as a result of their investigation, and then refer the matter to the Director of Public Prosecutions 
to determine whether to prosecute it. And, you know, there's an interplay between IPID, the prosecution, and the courts. So it involves the justice system to some extent as a whole. And, you know, it, it works sometimes. On other occasions, it doesn't work. Under the previous leadership of IPID, the way in which many of these cases dealt with, were dealt with was to uh, refer them to uh, employment disciplinary hearings. So the police who were alleged to be responsible for some serious wrongdoing could be yeah. disciplined and then dismissed from the police. And that, in many ways, is at least a start. You're getting rid of the bad apples. Mm. I'm not sure that the same enthusiasm for disciplinary hearings is present at the moment, um, but it was a good way to deal with these cases if they were not criminally prosecuted. And I do know of cases dealt with by IPID, uh, a torture case in particular that I can think of, that led to two police officers being convicted of murder. And um, it didn't really get the kind of publicity that it deserved. So they do have some successes, and we don't always hear about their successes. Yeah. Uh, importantly, then, the question is, when it comes to what qualifies as a case of police brutality, there must be a test at least, right? Because how do we know the difference between police just using force to apprehend uh, assailants versus excessive force to the extent that it qualifies as uh, assault or potentially brutality. What is the test in law? Well, if if it's alleged that they used some kind of physical force, then they must justify it. So, you know, um, I'm... <laughs> It's kind of you know it when you see it, um, and it depends on the context. Yeah. You know, they can obviously, in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act, use physical force if appropriate to arrest somebody. Uh, they can act in self-defense, or perhaps on grounds of necessity, they may have a defense where they exert some kind of physical violence on somebody. But, yeah, you know, it they... they they're allowed to arrest people. They're allowed, and that can you. They can use even deadly force in appropriate circumstances. But uh, you know what we saw um, in those videos taking place in Johannesburg is an instance of something that would be clearly unlawful. And one of the features which made it quite apparent was that after the police misconducted themselves, they left the scene. They did yeah. not arrest anybody there. They were not acting with the purpose of bringing perpetrators to justice. They were exerting violence out of a sense of power and authority and arrogance. Yeah. And that you see quite often. What does the appropriate level of recourse look like? Uh, what, what set of uh, protections and entitlements are the victims due? Well, I think that there are three. The first is a criminal case can be investigated against the alleged perpetrators. So somebody could lay a charge at their local police station. It could be referred to IPED, the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, which is set up to investigate 
allegations against the police of, in these kinds of cases. So there is an independent body which could investigate these cases, although in many cases it is a situation where the police will be arrest investigating the police. Yeah. But the criminal case will be investigated one way or another, either by the SAPS or by IPED. It's then referred to the prosecution. The prosecution must decide whether the docket is substantial enough to warrant uh, a criminal case being launched against police officers. They could be arrested or summoned to appear in a criminal court, and then a normal criminal case would proceed against the accused police officers. So you'll have a criminal case. Secondly, you can have, as I've mentioned, internal disciplinary hearings yeah. conducted by um, police human resources against individual police officers for misconduct. So that's a labor matter, and when appropriate, the police officers against who, whom there's been uh, an allegation which has been proved could be dismissed. The third situation is to launch civil proceedings claiming compensation for the harm that has been suffered. Yeah. Now there, there's certain requirements that exist before you launch yeah, and and, and, and and that's the one I'm You've most curious about. Can I, of demand can I can I just pause you there, uh, Prof. Prof. Jordi? Our line is a little bit shaken. I do want to hear you clearly on 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 the pros, pros, uh, civil procedure claiming damages, uh, so that we understand that procedurally very well, uh, and what the 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 jurisprudential test would be for damages to be due. But I'd love to hear from you if you're listening to us right now. Give me a call: zero eight six triple zero two zero three two zero eight six triple zero two zero. Three, two. Let's take a quick break. Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. I'm in conversation with Professor jo Peter Jordi of the University of the Witwatersrand, uh, working at the Law Clinic over there and lecturing at the university. Prof, before we went to the break, we were talking about uh, the potential of a civil procedure of the victims claiming damages against uh, SAPS. Uh, and of course, you were then taking us through what the, those requirements would be. A letter of demand, you said, would have to be uh, sent out. What exactly would they be demanding? Okay. Uh, there's a piece of legislation that's got a long name. I can give you the name, but it may not be appropriate, which requires that you address these letters of demand to the provincial commissioner and the national commissioner within six months of the cause of action arising. In that letter of demand, you've got to briefly set out what your allegations are. So you would describe the facts of the case briefly. Yeah and perhaps give police reference numbers to aid the police to investigate the matter. And then you'd end up with some kind of demand saying that you are claiming damages in a certain amount. The letter would be addressed to a, the provincial commissioner of the police. So if the incident happened in Gauteng, it would go to the provincial commissioner whose offices are in Parktown in Johannesburg, as well as to the national commissioner of police whose offices are in Pretoria. So these two letters would have to be delivered. It's appropriate that they be hand-delivered. You've got six months to send those letters or deliver those letters. If you haven't complied with the six-month time limit, you can send the letters later. Slightly problematic that they are late, but you can ask a court to excuse the lateness of the letters of demand. So like a condemnation application? 
Exactly. You would bring a condemnation application to court to excuse the late letters of demand. The way in which I do that is first launch, well, I deliver the letters of demand, then we launch proceedings. In other words, we serve a summons. And once summons has been served, we bring an application to court asking a judge or magistrate to excuse the late letters of demand. And in the vast majority of cases, they do allow the late letter to be received. What is the litmus test for allowing lateness? I'm assuming is that in the interest of justice would be the question. Is that the end of it? Kind of. There are three requirements, basically. You've got a good case. So you describe the case in this application yeah. for condemnation. You set out the background facts of it with sufficient detail so that you can see that the person has a good case. You say that uh, three years have not run from when the cause of action arose, the date it happened, three, uh, you within a three-year period. And you also say that the police have not been prejudiced by your late delivery right. of the letter of demand. Right. And courts, in my experience, excuse late letters of demand quite easily. You're right. And so once you've passed the condemnation hurdle, if you needed to pass it, you yes. then, in the letter of demand, describe out the facts of the case. Do you, To what extent do you have to describe the damage uh, that you suffered and then quantifying the damage uh, either uh, as far as reparations or retribution is concerned or yeah. do you have to consult professionals to quantify that for you? Look, in the letter of demand, it's... It's stated in the relevant legislation that it only has to be brief. And you don't have to detail in, in too much, to a too great an extent, exactly what harm you've suffered or the amount even of damages that you're going to claim. So, to some extent, a thumbsuck would be appropriate. Right. You know, if uh, the, in the district magistrate's court, you can claim up to 200,000 Rand. Regional court magistrate, you can claim, um, regional magistrate's court, you can claim 400,000 rand, and in the high court, you can claim any amount. But it depends on the harm suffered. So somebody who spent a weekend in custody, uh, you know, 48 hours, roughly speaking, you'd think of a, a likelihood of winning perhaps 100 or 150,000 rand. So in your letter of demand, you talk about perhaps 200,000 rand. Right. But somebody who's been suffered a shooting injury where they are fairly seriously injured, you'd come up with a figure of a couple of million. Right. You don't have to be too scientific at the stage when you're sending the letter of demand. As I've said already, it's got to be brief. Yeah. So you don't need too much detail. The detail has to be in the summons when you start the litigation. And to draft a summons... A lawyer absolutely has to be involved in that. It's too easy to make serious errors if you do it yourself. Right. And and once that is settled, you perhaps then send this letter of demand. If they reject your letter of demand, you get you go to court, I'm assuming. They invariably will reject, reject your letter of demand. The legislation says they must acknowledge receipt. In some cases, they do acknowledge receipt. But in the vast majority of cases, they don't even bother to acknowledge receipt. Right. You've got to prove you delivered the letter. So the best way is hand delivering the letter and getting them to stamp a copy. So you can prove 
the date it was delivered and to whom it was delivered. It's got to be delivered to the provincial commissioner and the national commissioner's office. And in these offices, they have special personnel whose job is to receive these letters. So right. they know how to receive them, and it's a simple matter of delivering them. Right. After that, you've got three, three years from when the incident happened, when the cause of action arose, to serve a summons. So you've got to draw up that summons, which is a court document. Wait, wait, uh, sorry. Can, can I ask you to just maybe uh, rephrase that? Is it three years until you are able to deliver summons, or you have within no, no. three years to be able to deliver summons? So if the incident happened today, yeah. you've got three years to deliver the summons, and that's done by the sheriff of the court. So if it happened on the 6th of July, 2023, to four, to five, to six. It would have to be served by the, by the 5th of July, 2026, three years away. Yeah, okay. And within that period, you would have had to obviously deliver these letters of demand. Yeah, and, and, and now you go to court, should they not acquiesce to your letter of demand or not even acknowledge receipt you altogether? You serve a summons, yeah. and then the, the registrar of the court will determine a court date um, and you appear before a judge and civil proceedings then begin. Uh, right. What are the likelihood of high-profile cases, as is the one in this instance, of it being settled out of court? The, the, in my experience, the police never settle until you've got them at court. They may, you know, they'll, the day before or a couple of days before or at court, there's a fairly good chance they'll settle. Probably 30% of cases will settle. But many of the cases, you actually have to have a trial and prove your case. Um, this kind of high-profile case, uh, especially with uh, the in potential involvement of a politician, a politician's name is always mentioned in connection with this recent video, Sometimes there's political pressure to see things settled. Right. And, for example, Marikana was a case like that, where there was political pressure to see cases settled. But on the other hand, people on the, uh, who were bringing those cases didn't have an incentive. They had their own possible agenda, and some of those cases took a long time to settle. Mm. It depends, you know, you've got two sides You've got the police defending the case through the state attorney's office, and you've got the plaintiff's attorney. Each one has their own agenda. So mm. they don't always get settled. Some people want publicity. Some people want to see the case resolved quickly. Um, but usually the state attorney representing the minister of police requires that the case actually be proved through right. acting on their instructions from the police. Right. And and obviously a settlement would not be a settlement for the full value of your claim in the summons. Uh no, it's un <laughs> it's uh, if you set, if your if your litigation gets resolved for the same amount that you've claimed in the summons, there's always your feeling that perhaps you should have claimed a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you but these cases do not result in somebody getting enriched massively. That's a very unusual circumstance where the plaintiff does extraordinarily well. Yeah. In the vast majority of cases, the plaintiff feels 
a little bit aggrieved about the kind of money they've received. I suppose that's always natural. You know, people aren't, you know, when they see the numbers in the summons, the expectations are high, but the yeah. reality is slightly different. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, and you, you're not a humanities researcher, so feel free to speculate here. Would you mm. say that SAPS is the biggest loser in South African courts of any state institution? The claims against the police are huge in the billions of rands, but it's hard to win these cases. So the real number that's important is how much is awarded to the police against the police. Yeah. And yes, there's a lot of litigation being conducted against the minister of police, as I mentioned. Yeah. A lot. And there are substantial claims against the minister of police. It could well be the case that they pay out more than any other central government uh, entity. Mm. But there are large claims against the departments of health of each of the provincial governments. So police is central government, health is a provincial government responsibility. And of course, if some child gets born with brain damage, those claims can be multiple millions that are awarded. Right. You know, yeah. And I 10 can imagine. Or 20 million. So it's hard to win a claim for 10 million against the police. Yeah. I mean, you, you can quantify me- medical negligence. You can even get insurance for it. Police, police negligence. Is, is there a quantifiable scale in South Africa about where we are? Can you ensure such a thing either? Well, I, I suppose I suppose if the Minister of Police wanted insurance, they would be able to get it in exchange for a premium. Right. You know, their insurance businesses taking on these kind of liability for clients. But the Minister of Police doesn't have insurance. It comes out of the budget, a general budget. And their attorneys are the state attorneys. There are many state attorneys. Uh, I think there are 40 state attorneys in mm. Johannesburg. And they're experienced. They've de- dealt with hundreds of these cases, if not thousands, both in the high court and the magistrate's court. They litigate uh, virtually every day. They're in court running trials. They know, they know what they're doing. Mm. And in most cases, the vast majority of cases, they represent the Minister of Police appropriately. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Prof. Peter Jordi, your insights were incredibly valuable. Thank you so much for coming onto the platform. I really, really do appreciate you helping us make sense of procedurally what would likely be uh, the sequence of events and, and the uh, likelihood of success. We really, really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. I'm taking your reactions to that. Give me a call, 86 I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 614 We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of that, we speak to the University of Fort Hare's Foundation.